Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson Newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you on this Friday afternoon, a late week edition. And I think uh, both myself and Brendan could be listed as day-to-day at the time being. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty accurate. Uh, physically, uh, tennis has been played recently. Mm-hmm. I got a sore Achilles. Uh, a, a ghost injury, some might say. We have no idea how it happened. I, I think I think it was repeated stress. Um, I sure. left it all out on the court. Yep. Um, and you developed a blister, which, if anything, sounds like a, a lesser injury. But I, I got something over it play pretty through. quickly. It, it uh, seems like I didn't miss any time. It does seem like something you could play through, though, Brendan. I, I'm planning on it. Absolutely. I, I just wear my heart on my sleeve. I leave it all out there. I, I play through the injuries. I tough them out. Uh, I think that, you know, I... I, I participated in some light baseball activity after receiving my injury. Mm. You know, I didn't want to push myself. Right. I, I don't think, uh, you know, you should play through injuries when they're debilitating, as my Achilles was. Right, 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 right. Um, and it's totally real, not manufactured injury in any way. Yeah. This is this is all very true. Brent. Yeah. No, um, I, I believe you. I think everybody believes you. You think everybody believes it? That's what I'd like to think. All right. Well, we, uh, we're going to have Joe Trezza on in lo- just a little bit. He's from MLB.com, and we're going to talk about some Orioles prospects uh, because he was one of the ones who helped rank them and uh, Orioles.com in the top 30. So interesting conversation coming there. But first, we got to talk about the current state of the Orioles team because what a weekend they had, and then what a week. I mean, absolute highs of all highs, getting to 5-3, and three, sweeping the Rays, a team that I picked to win the division. Not going to win the division, but they're the second or, at worst, third best team in the AL East. The Orioles sweep them and look good in all three games and then just lay an absolute egg against the Marlins in four games, barely score any runs through the first three runs, finally start coming in the fourth game, but then the pitching falls apart. Just... All four games, um, you felt like the Orioles just were not ready to play that Marlins team, which if anybody had an excuse to be not ready to play, it was the Marlins. Right, and those Rays games were really interesting too because it's not like any of them were fluky victories. I mean, the Orioles just flat out outplayed the Rays in that series. First, you beat Blake Snell, who won the Cy Young. Then you beat Tyler Glass now, who many were choosing to win the Cy Young this year because he's finally healthy. He's got nasty stuff. And if he stays healthy throughout a 60-game season, he could be he could be putting up massive numbers. And then you beat Chirinos, who, again, is not the caliber of Blake Snell or Tyler Glass now, but is still a really quality starting pitcher. And you don't just beat the Rays on some fluky extra inning hit. You beat the Rays pretty handily. And like you said, the Rays are pretty solidly the second best team in the AL East. They are one of the best teams in the American League, period. And even if they don't win the division, because we know the powerhouse Yankees might run away with things, that's how it's looking right now, the Rays are probably going to make the playoffs as the two seed in the AL East, especially with this expanded playoff format. They might have been the wildcard team to begin with. 
So now all of a sudden, the Baltimore Orioles stocks skyrocket. Yeah. Because you've got really good hitting, you've got really good pitching, and now you're playing a Marlins team that was quarantined for a week, couldn't play baseball, and they have to rebuild about half their roster, and you're the Orioles, you're staying home, you have all the momentum from beating a really good Rays team, and now you're looking at, you know, a 60-game season, and if you get ahead on two series, that's a playoff push all of a sudden. So the, the, the Orioles look to be in really good position going into this series against Miami, and then just lay an egg. Yeah. The offense was horrible. The pitching was still pretty consistent, at least over the first three games against the Marlins. That carried over from that series with Tampa. But the, all of the hitters just went cold at the same time. Rio Ruiz was out of the lineup. Jose Iglesias was out of the lineup for the first few games. And they just couldn't get anything going offensively. And basically all of the momentum that they had built up from that series over Tampa Bay just dissipated. Yeah. I mean, and and I think there were several concerning things uh, in that series. Um, and it seemed like a lot of questions that we had answered last week. All of a sudden, the questions have popped back up. So we're on this podcast uh, going to talk about some of the, the concerning aspects of this team. And how concerned should we be through the first week of the season? Because, again, small sample size. But that being said, it's going to be a small sample size for the season. So, you know, if you... If you got as high as you did after that 5-3 and three start, you have to then have an appropriate response for the four straight losses um, because now they are what? I mean, they're over a six, about a fifth of the way through the season. Um, so now it starts to get interesting, and, and the stats are starting to solidify. Right. So let's talk about some of the, the things concerning or not that are going on on the Baltimore Orioles. First and foremost, the guy that was hitting leadoff for the first week bumped down in the lineup. That would be Austin Hayes. He's now hitting 146. Uh, I don't believe he has an extra base hit. No, he doesn't. Um, so all singles, and most of them, honestly, are infield singles. He has stolen one or two bases, yep. but um, he is struggling. And for a guy that um, – I remember we had you know Kevin Brown on this podcast, and he picked Austin Hayes to be his player Oriole of the year, um, most valuable Oriole by season's end, a guy who was trending upwards. He all of a sudden uh, can't – can't get to seem to get any kind of power. And, uh, you know, when he is able to get a hit, it's an infield hit. So how concerned are you, Brendan, about Austin Hayes' slow start? On a scale of 1 to 10, I think I'd put my concern meter at about a 5. Okay. Um, You know, like you said, he's got those six singles, and he's gotten unlucky on some of his hits. But he hasn't been so unlucky that it accounts for his batting average being as low as it is. Right. According to Baseball Savant, he's in the 23rd percentile in expected weighted on-base average. 23rd? 23rd. So that's low. So that's pretty low. (laughs) And he's also in 29th percentile in expected batting average. Right. So he's not getting on base. But the reason my concern meter is about a 5 is because he's still a threat once he does get on base. He's in the top 10 in the American League in stolen bases with two. Mm-hmm. And he's still a very above average fielder. Right. He's a very good fielder in center field. So that's why my concern meter is about a five, because even when the bat isn't there, he's still producing in other ways. But the bat really needs to pick up. We saw yeah. it last year, and he's got to start producing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put it around a five or a four at the same spot, because 
I mean, he was going to, you know, it was more likely than not he was going to have some kind of sophomore slump after that outstanding September. But that being said, I mean, I, I think I would be a little bit more okay with it if he had a homer or a double or a right. triple in there. But the no fact extra that, base yeah, hits? Yeah, the fact, if he was hitting 146, but, you know, was hitting the ball to the warning track, was, it, it, it feels like, you know, he is not making a whole lot of contact. He's not seeing the ball particularly well. Uh, and he is not driving the ball. That's the, it, it, which is, you know, he was never expected to be a superpower hitter. But last year we saw him drive the ball and hit, what, four homers in that one month. Um, and, you know, it, at the very least, he would, the, the hope would be he would have some kind of gap-to-gap power. He just has not shown that. But um, small sample size again. And, you know, I think that he will be able to turn this around. He has too much talent to be hitting for 146. He has too much talent, um, you know, to be going through an extended slump of this length. So, so I think he will turn it around. It is getting late in the year to the point where sadly a week and a half in to the point where, you know, he is, is kind of playing himself out of the conversation in some, you know, he, he I don't know if he's ever, if, if he's going to get back the leadoff spot this season um, because of how much he struggled in that spot. Um, so we'll see what, what happens with him, but yeah, I would put my concern right around the middle there. And I think it's also important to note that I don't think Hayes should be expected to put up the numbers that he did last season. Yeah, of that, course. Those were going to be really hard to replicate always, but yeah. it's got to be higher than 146. Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, all right, next up, uh, also of concern, Chris Davis. Uh, now hitting 179, is that correct? He's yep. two for 23. Uh, that he was one for 22 until late yesterday, uh, at which point uh, he hit a double in the ninth inning of that game against um, the Marlins. Those two hits are doubles, but he is, I mean, all the, all the great things we saw in spring training, all the great things we heard in summer camp, we have not seen it yet. We haven't seen the power. He is still flying out to the warning track on a regular basis. I mean, the, the thinking was this year that adding that weight back, adding the strength back, would mean that he would, those balls would be going over the fence. And they still are not doing that. He still is not seeing the, the pitches particularly well. He's not taking a ton of walks by any stretch. It feels very much like the same Chris Davis, which is upsetting considering the expectations we had for him this year. Right, and if I'm still going on the concern meter, my concern meter isn't very high because I don't think concern is really the right way to put it I think the way that I would put it would be just kind of disappointed because like you said all we heard leading up to this season was this is a new Chris Davis this is a Chris Davis from a few years ago that was putting up good power numbers we're seeing the balls actually fly out of the park instead of that warning track power that we've kind of seen lately everything was trending upwards for Chris Davis and I think you and I on our over-unders, we were looking for, what, Chris Davis homers, and I think we set the market nine and a half. Something like that, yeah. Nine and a half, that and now both looks, of us set over. That now looks un- wholly unachievable. Which, to be fair, most of our over-unders do not look great right now. Yeah. But that Chris Davis one especially does just not look very good. You you already won one over-under, which was Michael Elias' trade. trades. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for acknowledging that. There but, you go. I, I don't think concern is the right word for me anyway for Chris Davis. I think it's just more I'm disappointed that everything that we heard leading up to this season 
hasn't really been coming to fruition. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, again, he's still got time to turn it around, but at, at this point, it, he looks very much like the same Chris Davis we're used to seeing. Concern meter for this guy, John Means, who is currently on the bereavement list, and so he is out at the moment. But uh, first start of the year, again, he missed opening day start because of injury, because of fatigued arm. And his first start of the year against the Yankees uh, gets hit around. It gives up a grand slam in the first inning, uh, eventually calms down, and then is much better, much, much better in his second start of the season, which John Means is closer to the John Means that we're going to get for the full season. And how much did that first start concern you? It really didn't concern me much at all. I'd throw my concern meter at about a two. I mean, giving up a grand slam in the first inning that's going to skyrocket your your ERA. So you look at that 771, it's not good, but I mean that's what happens when you give up a grand slam in the first inning. And you're you're also playing the Yankees who have one of if not the best lineups in baseball. So I'm not really concerned with that. I also don't know if he's going to be as efficient the entire year as he was against the Marlins, because again, you're probably going to be facing lineups that are slightly better than the Marlins. Right. So I think his true ERA is probably somewhere in the middle. I think, will he be a sub three ERA pitcher this season? Probably not. Will he be over five this season? Probably not. I think he probably falls somewhere in the three and a half to four and a half ERA range and that's where I'd be comfortable with John Means. Yeah, the problem with this season is that for every start he's going to get against the Marlins, he's going to get one against the Yankees. Right. You know, just statistically, he's going to have to face some of the better hitting teams in baseball this season. So that ERA might be inflated. And at this point, if, if it's at 7-7-1 through the first you know, two weeks of the season, it's probably going to stay high just because right. now they, he doesn't have well, any starts. And left. I think everybody was expecting to, when you look at the teams that the Orioles have to play this season, Yeah, I think a lot of people were saying, okay, realistically, his ERA is probably not going to be that great, but that doesn't mean that he's not pitching well. It just means that he's facing a lot of really good hitters. Right. And, and also, that was his first inning back. Um and he is he wasn't able to go deep into that game. He wasn't able to go deep into the Marlins game because they're easing him back in after that arm fatigue. So it's not like he was able to rack up, you know, lower that ERA by getting more innings and, um, you know, doing it the natural way. He's just kind of have to slowly come back and slowly lower that thing. Yeah, but I'm not overly concerned about that. His velocity is up, which is amazing. Right. Um, he worked on that in spring training, made a minor tweak. He's hoping it's going to stay there. Um, but that's pretty impressive and good to see that he's not staying stagnant. He's making he already made adjustments since the end of last year. Concern meter for this guy, last one, DJ Stewart. 0 for 14, yeah. and eventually sent back down to the alternate site. For a while, you could say, okay, well, at least he's drawing his walks, and then all the positives just kind of flew out the window because he, it, it got to the point where he just literally did not have a hit. I think... To be perfectly honest, my concern meter for DJ Stewart is is a 10 because right now DJ Stewart is at the point where he's running out of chances to prove that he can be an everyday player in this lineup. And I think DJ Stewart at the beginning of the season, he probably wouldn't have had a chance to be an everyday player had it not been for the absence of Trey Mancini. And you've got to assume in DJ Stewart's head that he's thinking, all right, this is my shot. Like, I've got to go out and prove that I can be an everyday outfielder. Like, this is my chance. I've got to take advantage of it. 
And then all of a sudden, you get two games in and you don't have a hit. Right. And then in the back of his head, he's going, man, I, I really got to get going because this is it. This is the shot. And then three games, four games. And I think it just piled up. I think he needs a reset. I think he just needs to go and take a little bit of time because I think, seriously, he just looked like he was pushing. And you said that the walks were there, but I think his time is getting pretty close to running out to being an everyday outfielder. I think he still has a good shot of being a rotational guy. But when you've got, you know, the Cedric Mullins, the Dwight Smith Juniors, and the Ryan Mountcastles, I mean, Orioles fans have been clamoring for Ryan Mountcastle for basically the entire season, and he's chomping at your heels. Yeah. So I I think for DJ Stewart, you just need a mental reset. You've got to go back, get back to the fundamentals, and don't push so hard at the plate. The walks... We're there, and that's a positive sign, but once those left, not a lot of positives. Yeah, I mean, it it does feel very similar to what we saw in the first couple weeks of the season last year from Cedric Mullins. Uh, He lasted on the Major League roster for the first month and a week, about five weeks, and then he was sent back down to the minors, and then eventually from Norfolk, he was sent back down to Bowie. That's where he ended last season because that first month plus in the big leagues last year for Cedric Mullins, he hit like 088. No no power whatsoever. Um, didn't even have a double. Had a couple triples at that point. But it feels very similar. You know, a guy who flashed the year before comes into camp, has a real opportunity to take a starting spot, and just cannot make good on it. Um, but I remember before the season, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, who should be in the starting outfield. And Brandon Hyde and that coaching staff gave dj stewart the edge over a dwight smith jr or and over a cedric mullins i mean he they wanted him to grab a hold of an outfield spot this season and he did not do that and when he's not hitting at all not just not for power but not at all you can't make the case for him over a cedric mullins who at the very least plays good center field you can't stick dj stewart into center uh at the very least you know uh mullins has speed on the bases DJ Stewart does not. So, you know, uh, a Cedric Mullins, even a Dwight Smith Jr., who has a couple homers, those guys both have an edge over him. So DJ Stewart has to climb his way back up because um, it was a rough, rough start. Right. You hit the nail on the head there. Dwight Smith Jr. has the better bat right now. Yeah. And Cedric Mullins is the better fielder and has better speed. Yeah. And even when Cedric Mullins isn't hitting, he's not hitting well right now. At least he's a threat to steal bases. And that's more than you can say for DJ Stewart. So if you have outfielders that are beating him in every category, that, yeah, what are you going to do? Exactly. All right. Well, there's our concern meters for some of the guys on the Orioles at this point. They are taking on the Washington Nationals for a three-game series this weekend. Brendan, I have some would-you-rathers for you. Oh, boy. Uh, I came up with, these are just totally random. Some of these are base. They're all baseball-related, I will say that. Oh, that's good. Um, Some of them are Orioles-related. Some of them are in general. Okay. Are you prepared to answer some of these? I have not given you a cheat sheet beforehand. I don't think I'm prepared at all, but here we go. All right. First and foremost, Brendan, we've seen some crazy rule changes this season. We've seen a 162-game season become a 60-game season. We've seen a DH implemented all around baseball. We've seen a runner placed on second base to start extra innings. So, and now we've seen an expanded playoff field as well. We can't forget about that. 16 teams mm-hmm. making the playoffs. My question for you, and I, this is going to taste test. Taste test? Taste this test? is going to test your baseball pure purism. Okay. I think I'm just making up words at this yeah. point. Would you rather 
play a 162-game season okay. with a universal DH and expanded playoffs or a 100-game season. This is, of course, a regular year, no, no pandemic here. Okay. 100-game season without a universal DH, so only the DH and the AL, and no expanded playoffs. Goodness. 162 universal DH expanded playoffs or 100 games, no universal DH, no expanded playoffs. See, this is tough because I like the 162 games. I like universal DH, but I hate expanded playoffs. So this is really just balancing, does my hate of the expanded playoffs outweigh the universal DH and 162? Yep. And I think it does. I would rather play 100 games with no universal DH and no expanded playoffs. I really dislike the expanded playoffs. I don't think that more than half the league should be making the playoffs. Yeah. Because I think this year especially, I mean, we don't know how the season is going to turn out, but if you're getting sub-500 teams in the playoffs... I don't, I don't want to watch sub-500 teams in the playoffs. This year, I think it does make sense. I, th- I think this year, absolutely, it makes sense. But if you're playing a 162-game right. season, no way. Because that long of a season is going to weed out the teams that maybe just have a hot streak for 20 games, right. however long it is. Yeah. Well, I hate to break it to you. I think, I think baseball is trending the opposite direction. I know. I think it's more likely that they keep the 162-game season. They don't shorten it in a non-pandemic season. I think the Universal DH is coming. It may be coming yep. in 2021. And I think those expanded playoffs are going to be here to stay. I don't know if it's going to be 16 teams or 14 or however they work it out, but I think it's going to be here to stay. I, I just don't like the expanded playoffs. I think I we know. have I, to because, see it. I think we have to see it first. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. I Honestly, I, I have slightly come around to the idea of the runner on second. Slightly. I'm still against it. But I had to yeah. see it in action and to, to see that... I'd agree Whether with that. Whether it was good or bad. And honestly, I mean, it does make it more, it does feel very college football aspect. Yep. Uh, and, I, and I suppose you could run into a scenario where, you know, a team that wasn't supposed to make the playoffs all of a sudden upsets one of the better teams in the league, and that's exciting. Right. But uh, I don't know. Yep. I, I'm still going with my second option. All right. More would you rathers. Would you rather have John Means, this is not possible at this point probably, okay. win the Cy Young this year in a shortened season, mm-hmm. or be a 20-game winner in a full season? 20-game winner. Because, well, is the full season this year? No, no, no. No, 2021. Let's say it's 2021. 2021, then absolutely John means 21 season in 2021. Because that means that the The Orioles are are trending in the right direction and are winning. I've said a ton of times, and I'll say it again, I don't think the goal for this year is to win games. The goal for this year is to find the guys who are going to be the rebuild pieces going forward. Right. John Means, we are already pretty sure, is a rebuild piece for moving forward. Yeah. But a 20-win season would absolutely solidify that next year, and it means the Orioles are winning games at a time when you're trying to trend in that direction. Even though you're still rebuilding next year, You still want to win games. You still want to be going at least in that direction. So I would absolutely take a John Means 20-win season. I think he would, too. Yeah. You could get, yeah. I mean, mean, obviously, I don't think anybody's going to win 20 games for the Orioles in 2021. 
And 20-game winners are hard to find, period. But, yes, I agree. It's, it won it's, Rick Porcello a Cy Young. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, all right, more would-you-rathers. We have seen good catcher play over the past, especially offensively, if he defensively, over mm-hmm. the first week and a half. Uh, from both Pedro Severino and from Chance Cisco. Cisco hit a home run last night. Cisco's hitting over 400 now, drawing a ton of walks, even though he's not playing every day. He's splitting that time with Severino. So if you had a winner take all game, a, a uh, you know, wild card game, wild card playing game, whatever it is, winner take all, who would you rather have behind the plate, Pedro Severino or Chance Cisco? I think right now I would probably take Severino. Adley Rutschman is not an option. Oh, well, there goes my answer. Yeah, there you go. Um, I think I would probably take Severino. He's gotten more opportunities this season. I think he's been he's been solid. He's been solid at the plate. And other than those two really wacky errors where he just stuck his glove out too far and had the catcher interference calls, yeah. I think he's been solid behind the plate. And in a play-in game right now, I think I'd take the experience of Severino over Cisco. Even though Cisco has been fantastic so far this season, I think I need a little bit more if I were to pick him for one game right now. Moving forward into the next few seasons, absolutely, I'd take Chance Cisco because of that potential, and he's showing that potential right now. But for one game, Severino. I would probably go the same, although Cisco is starting to impress. If um, Cisco continues his run this season, then I'd absolutely change my answer, but I, mean, I need to see a little bit more, I think. This guy was a the Orioles' number one prospect, it feels like forever ago, but back in 2016, 17-ish, he was very well regarded as a prospect, and he got to the big leagues, and he struggled, and he, and he had injuries, and he went back and forth, but I think if he give him another week of producing somewhere like this, um, and I think I might be enough to tur- turn the tide there. Because, you know, Severino is having a great run with Baltimore. But also, remember, he, you know, for most of it, he is still fairly young. But he has not been a great player up until last year. You know, he was a very replaceable backup catcher for a long, for his entire career up until last year. Chancisco, at least, still has some potential maybe that has not been tapped into. So, I think Cisco at this point, Severino... But if Cisco keeps hitting like this, it might be Cisco at some point. Right. Ask me three weeks from now, and, and maybe it it's a different a, answer. Yeah. yeah. All right. Would you rather, if you had to extend one of these guys, and there is absolutely no reason whatsoever for the Orioles to extend any of these guys <laughs> at this point in their rebuild and at this point in each of these contracts. However, basically this is, who would you rather have going forward? If you had to commit to one guy okay. going forward of the guys in the current roster, three guys for you, Anthony Santander, Rio Ruiz, and Renato Nunez. Which of those three guys would you commit to if you had to? Santander. How come? Absolutely. I think Santander has shown flashes of being the most complete player out of any of them. I don't know if he has quite the bat that Renato Nunez has, but he's a solid fielder in the outfield. He has shown that he can be a really good, consistent bat. I know his average isn't there right now, but I think Santander has a lot more potential and I think he can be a solid piece in the lineup and a solid fixture in the outfield, Santander. I think Santander is not quite there yet. I think he still has the highest ceiling, probably, of all these three guys. Yeah, still has room to grow, absolutely. Yes, um, but to me, if I had to commit to one guy, it's tough. It is tough. I would, I would probably go Santander at this point. Um, however, Rio Ruiz 
until he got injured, was awesome coming out of the gates in this season. Uh, Renato Nunez still has crazy power, hit two home runs last night. Um, Nunez still, his plate discipline is just not there, and he gets exposed so many times, way too many times for me to want to commit to a guy who relies so much on his power and does not play good enough defense and is, is he, he is a DH. I mean, he, he really cannot play third base um, at an everyday level on a winning team. So he's a DH. Rio Ruiz, it's close. If, if again, this is similar to the previous question. If in three weeks Rio Ruiz is still hitting, I'm probably taking Rio Ruiz here. Yeah, if because he's, you know if he's, he's hitting, hitting over 300. Right. It, well, yeah, I mean, uh, of course at that point. But, right. I mean, Santander to me has not sealed the deal. He's hitting like 217 right now. And oh, he's up to 234 after 234. the last few games. Okay. So yeah. he's he's doing a little bit better, but and he up. still has the power. But um, I might go Rio Ruiz just because you know he's going to give you solid defense at third base. And, you know, if, if this power, if this newfound power is for real, he's going to be a pretty solid contributor. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's pretty close between Santander and Ruiz. I don't think Nunez, just for the fact that he's not good defensively, that pretty much just bumps him out of the conversation. But if Santander hits somewhere in the 260s and gives you somewhere in the 20 to 25 range in home runs, I'd take yeah. Santander. All right, I'm going to keep going with would-you-rathers, but first I want to correct myself because earlier you, I said that Chris Davis is hitting 179. He's hitting 087. Thank you to one of our viewers for calling that out. Two for 23. Good math there. Uh, math is oh, hard. Math is difficult. We weren't math majors. He hit 179 last season. He is hitting 087 at this point uh, so far through the season. Two Not for great, 23. Bob. All right. Would you rather? Now, this has to do with no fans in the stands. Would okay. you rather play every game at home? I don't know. How, how did I write this one? Every game at home, but there are only opposing fans in the stands, or every game on the road with no fans? Every game at home. So you're, but the there Orioles are, only are playing road ed, fans. Every game at home, but they, you know they're playing the Yankees. Only Yankees fans. Maybe occasional Orioles fans here, huh? Or would you rather play at Yankee Stadium? No fans in the stands. Crowd noise pumped in. I think. Is this would I think the Orioles the would do that if I? No, no. If you're on the team. If I'm on the team. Yeah. Which. I mean, look at you. You look. You, you I'm still. Right I'm in. still waiting for my call on draft day. Uh, we'll see. But I think personally, I would rather play with only the opposing fans because I. I think there's just something about playing in front of actual people right. that even if they're against you, you can still feed off of that. Yeah. I mean, like when you're playing at you know somebody else's park, it's the same kind of thing. You still feed off of those fans, even if they're chirping you, like. You know, you feed off of that, and you you get energy from that. I think if there's no fans in the stands, it's a lot harder to not find the motivation to play. I don't think that's the right word, but but kind of have that same drive and and passion during the game that is on top of your drive and passion to already play the game to begin with. So I think I would rather have only opposing fans, and you get to stay home. That's nice. Yeah, you get to know at least the the outfield you have you know you stay in your, the home clubhouse there are benefits to being and and you're sleeping in your own bed there are benefits to being um the home team in your home city as opposed to being in a hotel visitors cramped clubhouse all that kind of stuff so yes i would tend to agree however knowing how yankees and red sox fans can be 
Sure. I might say be on the road. Sure. <laughs> Not because, just because it can be absolutely brutal when they take over a ballpark. Yeah. I, I think it would definitely get tiring after a while. Yeah. And they're they're worse. They're they're louder. Not worse. They're louder. Uh, and this is with every team, I feel like. They're louder when they are at an away ballpark because they feel like they need to overcompensate as opposed to being home. And the thing is, too, if you're the Orioles and you're not winning a ton of ball games, and you've got all of the opposing fans there, that's tough, That too. can be brutal. Because when you're winning and you've got opposing fans there, like, they're pretty quiet. They don't have much to say. But if you're getting destroyed, like, that's not going to be good yeah. with only opposing fans. I think it's going to be interesting by the end of the 60-game season to see if any teams, which teams have winning road rec- records and, um, you know, how much of a difference home field advantage makes without fans, of course, yeah. this year. All right. Uh, a couple more here. Would you rather have an outfield of Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Mason Williams, or an outfield of Ryan Mountcastle, DJ Stewart, and Dwight Smith Jr.? Hayes, Mullins, Williams, Mountcastle, Stewart, Dwight Smith Jr. Ooh, this is tough. Yeah. So you got Mason Williams and DJ Stewart, or and and DJ Stewart on each. You know, one on each. Okay. Either of them are with the big league club at this point. Right. So they're they're not even, you know, contributing much at all. You have the best player on the first one is Austin Hayes. The best player on the second one is Ryan Mountcastle. And then the guys in between, Cedric Mullins and Dwight Smith. It, they offer very different things. Yeah. Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins this is, a would you rather. is going to give you a lot of defense mm-hmm. and a lot of speed and not necessarily a ton of hitting and Mount Castle, Dwight Smith Jr. and DJ Stewart is going to give you hitting, but oh my goodness, that outfield is going to be treacherous defensively. defensively yeah. I mean, who's playing center field there? Dwight Smith Jr.? Yeah, I didn't probably. Even think, yeah, I didn't so, even think about that. There's not even a center I think, fielder in that I list. Think, I think for that reason alone, you kind of have to go with Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Mason Williams, and just really, really hope that the other guys in the lineup are hitting. Because, okay, I think Austin Hayes is going to turn things around. I think he's going to be a solid hitter at the top of the lineup. I think Cedric Mullins and Mason Williams, you kind of bury in the lineup. If Cedric Mullins gets on, he's a threat on the base paths, and he's a solid defensive outfielder. So... For that reason, I think purely defensively, I'm going with that outfield because I don't even want to imagine if there is a tough play in the outfield and you've got who's going to get Mount, the ball. Who's going to get the ball? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to find out. Yeah. So I'm going with Hayes, Mullins, and Williams. Give me all the offense. Give me Mount Ca- not all the offense. Some slightly more offense. See, but if, you, if you're Stewart committing like 13 Dwarfman. errors a game in the outfield. I don't know. You can figure it out. You, you got to score it. a lot of runs. They were, uh, Mount Castle, are you kidding me? He's hitting two bombs a game. Dwight Smith <laughs> is adding one of his own. This, this is also putting and DJ Stewart's ton, just taking walks. This is putting He's a just ton of walks. pressure on Ryan Mountcastle. He's just uh, because we're comparing. If we're saying okay, here's the well, two Mount best Castle, guys in the outfield. I think I think at this point, and this is what I think some fans have thought, like. I think if you stick Ryan Mountcastle in the bigs right now, I think he's hitting better than Austin Hayes. I do. I think he's hitting better than Austin Hayes. I think Hayes, he's the best, best hitter of this six-man group here. 
I think he's hitting better than Austin Hayes is right now, certainly. But is he providing the same value that Austin Hayes is providing? I don't think so. Because of his defensive? Because of his defensive ability and his speed. Yeah. I I would say I would disagree with you I think I I don't think Ryan Mountcastle is the best player of those six. I think it's Austin Hayes. I'm not saying he comes up and hits 300, but I do think he... That's interesting. Of of who could I think know, I think of the six I take Austin Hayes. We might we might get to test that. Hopefully, yeah. I think some fans are hoping that we get to test that this year, and and we'll see how it goes. Having just having those two guys in the outfield would be hugely exciting. All right, absolutely. Final one here, Brendan. Would you rather have a 2020 Orioles playoff appearance or Kumar Rocker? Kumar Rocker. <laughs> I knew exactly what you were I mean, do. just one million percent. I just think Kumar some fans Rocker. are going to disagree with you just because a playoff appearance is a playoff Look, appearance. Look, a playoff appearance is a playoff appearance. A playoff appearance in 2020 is a playoff appearance in 2020. I think you have to put those two things into very different categories. Right. A, because it's a shortened season. B, because there's extended playoffs. And C, because it's 2020 and everything is ridiculous and nothing makes sense. Yeah. But if you can get Kumar Rocker, I mean, you are winning the World Series every year. Kumar Rocker is the best baseball player of all time. Kumar Rocker is the number one prospect, Vanderbilt pitcher. Really, though, pitched his freshman year, pitched four games his sophomore year, may not play junior year. We'll see what happens to the college baseball season. I, look, he's a great prospect. He's in the vein of an Adley Rutschman where he's the number one prospect by far since, you know, for a long time. However, he is still a prospect who is going into his junior year of college. Listen, I'm not saying that he's Mike Trout on a pitcher's mound, but I'm not saying he's not. That, no pressure on Kumar Rocker, but I 1 million percent would take Kumar Rocker over a 2020 Orioles playoff appearance. The the thing is, the sad thing is, odds are they're probably not going to get either. But and that makes me sad. That, yeah, but that's the that's the nature of the game. That's it the is. nature of the game. Going to be interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that just about does it for the Would You Rather's. But we still have Joe Trezza of MLB.com. He hopped on the Mass and All Access podcast. He did the Orioles top 30 prospect list, which Great just list. came out a day or so ago. Uh, and also in conjunction with that. They came out with uh, MLB Pipeline, came out with the top 100 prospect list. Orioles, there are three Orioles on it. Three, did I get that right? Uh, four. Four Orioles on it. Grayson yep. Rodriguez is number 40. Uh, Heston Kerstad is number 68. Dia Hall is 77, I believe. Yep. And You're forgetting the big one. Adley Rutschman. Adley Rutschman. Oh, number yeah, four. he's number four. So four Orioles in the top 100. And all six Orioles draftees end up in the Orioles' top 30 prospect list. So Joe Trezza, MLB.com, broke down some of those decisions. Now we're joined by Joe Trezza of MLB.com here on the Mass and All Access podcast via Zoom. Joe, thanks so much for hopping on. How's it going, Paul? Thanks for having me. So let's start with the Major League team before we get into the prospect list, which you... Uh, compose at uh, MLB.com for the top 30 for the Baltimore Orioles. But before we get into that, let's touch on the MLB team on the field because that four-game sweep at the hands of the Marlins, I mean, that that was about as uh, disappointing as uh, a series as you could get considering the fact that the Marlins had not played in eight days, considering the fact that the Orioles were just coming off a three-game sweep of the Rays, then they just kind of lay an egg in those four games. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it was kind of a deflating week um, especially coming off that that really exciting Rays series this weekend, um, there was 
there was a lot of optimism around the Orioles hot start. You know, it's a 60 game season. Maybe they could shock the world. And, you know, that that isn't completely out of the realm of possibility anymore. But um, this week did kind of throw a little cold water, I think, on um, some of the, you know, surprise, maybe uh, expectations that kind of aroused from uh, from this past weekend when the Orioles were really, really playing well on both sides of the ball. Now, you know, they're still doing some things well. Um, especially in the aggregate, um, especially when you compare it to last season. Um, there's been improvement in uh, definitely on the pitching staff, um, and there are some young players that are swinging the bat really well, and there are others who aren't who are getting, you know, the kind of um, extended at-bats and uh, consistent playing time that the Orioles really think is important for their development. So, um, you know, in the aggregate, it's it's been kind of a hot and cold type start to the season. Um and I think things will kind of solidify when we when we kind of turn a, a corner here next week. And, you know, we're, we're about a fifth of the way done through the season now. So uh, the clock is ticking. Maybe we'll see some prospects. You know, maybe there'll be some more surprises. Um, but it's happening in kind of in a flash. Yeah, it is. Everything is changing every day <laughs> at a rapid pace at this point. One of the players that they faced on the Marlins was Richard Blyer, who, of course, they dealt for a player to be named later earlier on in the week. That bullpen does not have too many sure things at this point, so I think some fans, of course, reacted a little bit questionably or negatively towards the Richard Blyer trade, but they have seen some good performances still, in particular Miguel Castro, who amazingly is still 25 years old. That is mind-boggling considering how much experience he has gotten with this big league club, but he has come on very strong as of late. Yeah, so if, if you remember way back to when Miguel Castro was, I think, 20 years old when he debuted with the Rockies, people have been pegging this kind of breakout for him for a really, really long time, or at least hoping on it and wishing on it because of the size and because of the stuff. And the whole issue with Castro has always been, can he repeat his delivery enough? Can he put it all together? Can he command the baseball enough uh, for that stuff to really play at the big league level? And granted, you know, I think small sample size uh disclaimers kind of apply to everybody at this point in, in a short season. Um, but there were stretches last year, specifically uh, from the beginning of August through the end of September, where Miguel Castro was easily the best reliever on the Orioles. Um, and he had a, he had one big blow up, I think in his penultimate uh, appearance against the Blue Jays, he allowed six runs. There was a grand slam involved and that kind of skewered his, his stat line and ended up around league average in a lot of categories. But before that he was really dominant for a long period of time. He was, particularly nightmarish on right-handed hitters. Um, and he was he, he was commanding the baseball better, right? The walks were down, the strikeouts were up. That's what we're seeing this year, just in an extreme uh, sample. Also, his velocity is up in everything he throws. He's throwing 99-mile-an-hour sinkers. Um, he's throwing 93-mile-an-hour change-ups. Um, and he's got an increased movement on that slider as well to really make it kind of a sweeping, swing-and-miss out pitch. Now, again, the... <laughs> I think the important thing is, can, you know, can he be consistent? Can he, can he uh, repeat that delivery consistently and throw strikes consistently? That's what the Orioles are hoping. Will the mechanical adjustments take hold and take root? Um, but if they do, clearly that stuff plays uh, at, at, at a really, really high level in the big leagues. And he will, you know, be able to kind of bridge that gap or, or, or fill that hole um, that's, uh, that's kind of been left open with with the Blyer trade, especially if he can learn to get left-handed hitters out. Now, on top of that, um, the Orioles are seeing similar improvement from Tanner Scott. You know, they're hoping it's not smoke and mirrors in, in kind of the same way when it comes to command. Um, I think he's going to assume a lot of Richard Blyer's uh, left-handed 
responsibilities down there. Uh, and Paul Fry is going to continue to get opportunities in that lane as well. So I think when you're a rebuilding club, it's pretty um, normal to expect a guy like Blyer, even though he's a fan favorite, even though he was a clubhouse leader, um, and he was a really effective pitcher for the Orioles for a long time, that a guy like that is going to get dealt, you know, when um, the opportunity arises. And you also have to remember, this is such a weird season with a weird trade deadline. The Orioles don't know how many chances they're going to get to flip veterans, whether it's this month or next month or ever. So I think Michael Elias took that opportunity, pulled the trigger, um, and, you know, maybe you 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 strike on on the raffle card that, that you get from um, – from the Marlins in terms of that, that player to be named later. Yeah. I mean, Blyer fits into the category as Michael Givens, as well as kind of veteran guys that are definitely viewed as trade pieces and certainly are viewed by other teams around the league as trade pieces. But Castro is such an interesting case because he's still so young. It, it feels like he fits more into the category of Hunter Harvey, where he's, he could be a long-term piece and fixture in that bullpen. If he, shows his stuff and and uh, continues to perform well do you think he's closer to a hunter harvey in terms of he could stick around and eventually be on this team and in that bullpen when the team is good again i completely agree with you i think when a new front office comes in um you know they, they it, just, just to put it simply they kind of pull guys into two different groups right guys that maybe we can flip for for prospects that we like um and then here are some guys who maybe the results haven't been there but that we can mold and develop into guys that we love. And I really think that Miguel Castro fits that um, second pool. And he has really since the beginning, they've worked really, really hard to cultivate, um, you know, the, the, the stuff um, and, and the potential that so many teams have seen in him over the years. You know, you don't get promoted to the big leagues when you're 20 years old. Um, you don't get traded for Troy Tulowitzki when you're 22. Um, you know, you don't, there are guys who are so talented that sometimes that's the reason that they, change scenery a lot. And Miguel Castro has always been one of those in terms of just sheer arm strength and stuff. It's always really been about, can I harness it? Can I develop it as an, as an organization? And that's what the Orioles are really hanging their hat on these days. It's, um, you know, can we use technology to, to develop young pitching, right? Can we make guys that we have and that we like better? And then can we do the organizational thing and then supplement those pieces with outside help? And I do think Castro fits into that group as somebody who you can make better and that you can have for quite a while. And then you could flip through multiple roles if you have to. Well, speaking of guys that the Orioles are trying to develop and mold as they go along, uh, all six of the Orioles draftees from a couple months ago made it into your top 30 in terms of Orioles top prospects. You know, we saw at the top of the draft, the Orioles, many expected them to go with Austin Martin. Instead, they took Heston Kerstad, probably saved a little bit of money there and spread the, the money out throughout the rest of the draft. But the fact that all six of those guys that they just took in, in the draft made it into the top 30, do you think that uh, uh, says something about kind of the depth of the Orioles draft class this year? Or could it be, you know, the fact that the Orioles system still is not as deep um, as some other teams, or is it a little bit of a combination of the both there? Yeah, so I, I think it speaks to both points. I think, one, it speaks to the fact that while the, while the system is improving and has been improving, that it takes more than one draft to improve, and it takes more than one and a half drafts to improve, which is really what this draft kind of was. I know six rounds isn't half of 40, but let's you know just assume that a lot of those later guys don't ever really make it to – and it was essentially half a draft for the Orioles. And so I think that speaks to your, to your first point to where 
um, they really felt like they needed to maximize this class where it's almost like the concept of every game matters more in a 60 game season and every at bat matters more in a 60 game season. Well, in a six, in a six round draft, every pick matters more. So um, I think Mike Elias and the front office decided, okay, let's get six as good players as we possibly can instead. Let, let's try to go six for six instead of let's try to go maybe five for 25 or, or five for 30. Um, and, and the only way they would be able to do that is by going under slot at the top and then, you know, taking some gambles on some high upside high school kids at the end, which is what they did. And that's why I think you have um, Heston Kirkjad uh, at number three. That's why I think Jordan Westberg uh, was um, kind of an underrated pick. Uh, he, he, slides, he slots in at number seven. Um, people really like Hudson Haskin. Um, more so than Kyle Stowers from a year ago. Those guys are kind of comparable, but he's younger, a little more speed, um, a little more dynamic upside, I think. Um, and then the high school guys, the Kobe Mayo and, and, and the, the, the Carter um, Baumler, um, you know, they slot in there with Servadeo at 19-22, uh, and I believe Baumler's at 17. So, um, you know, the, the, the lower levels of the system, I think, still did need to be replenished a little bit. Um, and they probably still do. Uh, but the Orioles really took a step forward, I think with, a, with an eye towards kind of filling out those runs of the minors this year. Now the question remains, you know, what happens to those guys? And I think it's a question that all teams are asking themselves this year. Um, how do we make sure that these guys not only get better, but don't get worse uh, in, in, in a season with no minor league baseball. So um you know, the Orioles have talked a lot since they, the new front office got here about being on the cutting edge of things and getting to that progressive place in terms of development. And I think the next, um, the next place where we're going to see that across the league is in what did these teams do to get guys better when there were no games and who did that the best? Um, and I think it's going to take a while to see how that plays out, but uh, the Orioles are really focused on it. Yeah, I mean, that the first year of development, I feel like, for so many of these draftees is often the most important as they enter professional ball for the first time. And all these guys now, for the most part, are, are robbed of that as not getting to play organized baseball. It is, it is going to be fascinating to see where they are, maybe in spring training next year. By the You know, that might be the first time that they are playing with the team again and, and getting to face... Uh, you know, hitters getting to face batters on a regular basis. So that'll be interesting as well. But you mentioned Heston Kerstad slotting in there at number three. What went into his positioning in that top 30? And do you think that, um, you know, that he is just a tick behind an Adley Rutschman, a Grayson Rodriguez there? Yeah, and, and I think it's because of the profile. Um, you know, if you're a number one or a number two pick, you're probably going to slide up. Uh, to the top of the organizational prospect rankings. And that's why, you know, Adley was kind of a slam dunk, even if you take away the fact that he's a switch hitting catcher um, and then you throw that onto it, he's the clear number one. But I, you know, Kerchad, he, he slides in behind Rodriguez really just because of how much Rodriguez has emerged um, in, in the last year or so. I mean, he's the pretty clear uh, number one pitching prospect in the organization. And then with Heston, you have a guy who profiles as a middle of the order bat uh, with really good power and, um, you know, adequate other tools, but not necessarily the five tool kind of um, generational type skill set that you might see with a Rutschman or even with a frontline starter in, in Grayson Rodriguez. So um, I, I think it's a fair place to put him to slide him in between the two pitching prospects uh, as a, like a clear 
um, he's kind of clearly ahead of some of those other offensive prospects, especially the ones that are closer to the big leagues, uh, just because of his upside. Um, and of course, the power potential is there as well. It is crazy. Also, you mentioned Westberg slotting in there at number seven. He is a slot ahead of Yusniel Diaz. I remember not too long ago when Yusniel Diaz was the number one prospect in the Orioles system. That system has obviously been replenished, but it does feel like Diaz's injuries and maybe not quite as much production led to him sliding down and Westberg kind of taking that spot from him at number seven. It is is it a little bit of a disappointing fall for Yusniel Diaz, or do you think that he still has that potential to eventually be a regular Major League contributor? You know, I, I think he still does, but it has been disappointing in the sense that uh, while he's might have fallen in the rankings, he's kind of just plateaued in his development a little bit. Um, you know, this is a guy who, like you said, he's had a lot of like lower half injuries. He's had some durability issues. He hasn't really been the, um, the major, uh, like, major uh, middle of the line of producer that the Orioles have hoped that he would be. He hasn't dominated double A pitching uh, the way that they kind of hoped that, that he would. Now he gets robbed of a triple A season. You know, things could have, things could have changed. The calculus could have been different had there been a triple A season right now. Yusniel Diaz might have had a great start and been in the big leagues by now, but you get this situation with a lot of these prospects who could have debuted this year or, or who were in for very important seasons. Now they don't get that. So, you know, a bit of a wild card, um, a bit of a question mark still with Diaz. Uh, I think a big knock on him is that he isn't necessarily the center fielder that I think people thought he was, uh, whereas Westberg is a middle of the field player. Um, you know, the Orioles are really high now on drafting older middle of the field players, basically college athletes, um, guys who can play, who are drafted as shortstops, but hey, they might play center field, or hey, they could play uh, short right field in a shift, or hey, they could they can play anywhere probably around the field if the if the Orioles ask them to because they're athletic enough. Now Diaz isn't necessarily that player, so if you if you take that and you throw in the the bat that's just around average production instead of a total game changing bat, then you know then his prospect status dims a little bit, and I think that's what you've seen. Um, over the last two years or so, injuries have not helped. Um, and the fact that a minor league season isn't happening this year hasn't helped either. Um, that said, he's still pretty young. And so I think that kind of gets forgotten about a lot because he's been, he's been, his, he's been famous for so long, right? It's like we've been hearing about Diaz for so long. Still only, t- only 23, I believe, this year. So there is still time. Sounds good. And we know one thing, that the Orioles system is a whole lot better than it was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago and that these prospects are definitely on the rise. Well, Joe, thanks so much for hopping on here. Love to get your insight into the the system, as well as the team on the Major League uh, Diamond. So uh, always good to get you on here on the Mass and All Access podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a bunch for having me, and uh, be well and stay safe.